This is Save the Nation on ADH TV, and I'm David Flint, and my guest today is Chris Merritt, the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute, a legal correspondent with The Australian and a commentator on a large part of the media on legal affairs. Uh, Chris, welcome to the program. Could you tell us... Thank you, David. Not at all. Could you tell us just what is the rule of law and why is it important? It's a pretty fundamental set of principles uh, which underpin the Constitution. Uh, the same law, uh, broadly, the same law should apply to everybody equally. Uh, there's a number of associated principles, uh, such as the presumption of innocence and the right to a fair trial. Entire books have been written about this, this concept. Uh, it's found in uh, uh, most jurisdictions that uh, originate or have a link back to the Westminster system in, in Britain. Uh, th that doesn't mean to say they have to have a Westminster system of government. Um, the United States, for example, is a bastion of the rule of law and specifically rejected the Westminster system. Mm -hmm. But it's found in um, places like Canada, uh, New Zealand, this country particularly, uh, and it's a it's a guide, if you like, for uh, guarding against arbitrary rule and dictatorship is probably uh, the best way of describing it. So it's a, we don't have a uh, a bill of rights, a, a national bill of rights. Um, it it. In many ways, the rule of law and the principles associated with it uh, fill the void um, left by uh, the absence of a Bill of Rights and they protect the liberty of the individual uh, against the arbitrary use of power uh, by the state generally. That's how I'd sum it up. That's um, probably a, a rough summary, but that's broadly what it's all about. And they make the big distinction, don't they, when... Uh we're trying to put it over in a very simple way. It's the, the difference between the rule of law and the rule by men in their own absolute that's exactly discretion. Right. And that's so important, isn't it? And I think you've uh, explained it well. And uh, the Rule of Law Institute, of which you're vice president, is a very significant organisation maintaining support for all of these important principles. You've been commenting... Uh, in considerable detail and commendable detail, because it's been so explanatory, on the inquiry going on in Canberra conducted by the Queensland Solicitor General, I'm not sure if he's the current Solicitor General or the former Walter Sofronoff, King's Counsel. And uh, what, what is that inquiry all about, uh, Chris? It's, uh, it's broadly into uh, the key players in the... Uh, uh, the rape trial uh, of Bruce Lerman. This is the Brittany Higgins uh, rape trial. Uh, you might recall that uh, Bruce Lerman was charged with um, sexually assaulting Miss Higgins in the in Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, the uh, jury was discharged after misconduct by by one juror, and the the DPP, um, uh, Mr. Drumgold. Uh, spectacularly uh, uh, held a press conference at which he announced that there would not be a retrial because of his concerns for the health of Miss Higgins. 
But more to the point, at that press conference, he uh, expressed a view that uh, he still was confident that um, he could have achieved a conviction against Mr Lerman, um, which is a rather strange thing to say when you've decided not to prosecute a man. Uh, uh, first things first, uh, it calls into question his presumption of innocence. Uh, but more significantly for the people of the, the ACT, that means either of two things. Either uh, uh, the DPP believes there's a, a rapist walking around free in the streets of, of Canberra, um, or the ACT uh, justice system uh, is incapable of enforcing uh, a very serious part of uh, the criminal law. So on both those aspects, it's completely necessary and, and uh, welcome that the government of the ACT decided to hold an inquiry into this, um, into what exactly happened. There's been, uh, you might recall, there's been a, a great deal of tension uh, between uh, the office of the DPP, Mr Drumgold particularly, and uh, the people, the ACT police, or the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, who are responsible for policing in the Territory. Uh, some of the, um, uh, the evidence that's come out during this inquiry has shown that the police all the way along um, uh, were of the view that there was insufficient uh, evidence available to justify charging uh, Mr Lerman um, and they gave evidence. Uh, uh, Superintendent uh, Scott Moller uh, is the man I'm talking about. He gave evidence that Mr Drumgold believed that Mr Lerman um, should have been charged even before he received the brief of evidence from the police. The police believed that Mr Drumgold lost objectivity, uh, which is a pretty damning accusation. So at the end of this exercise, which is the report of Mr Sofranoff will not be due until I think the end of July, uh, will inevitably um, get an assessment of was anybody in the wrong here, which side was in the wrong. Did the police, as uh, uh, that Mr Drumgold asserts, uh, have a bizarre approach to, uh, to this case? Or uh, did Mr Drumgold uh, lose objectivity and uh, want to prosecute before even examining the uh, brief of evidence? It's very worrying on both counts. That... Uh, <clears throat> that uh public statement made by Mr. Drumgold, that uh, surprised me. It didn't seem to me to be like uh, the sort of thing an Australian uh, Crown Prosecutor, TPP, would be doing. It reminded me very much mm. of what we see in the United States where we have, uh, you have elected district attorneys. And uh, the, the most recent example of that was Mr. Bragg in New York who was out to get Donald Trump mm. and gave all sorts of media interviews and uh, behaved very much like a politician. And uh, I, I was astounded, I must say, by Mr. Drumgold's statement, as I was equally astounded by Ms. Higgins' statement straight after the case mm. closed. No, I'm not surprised. They're both um, 
extraordinary developments in uh, uh, criminal justice. Uh, I don't think we've seen anything like this before, and I hope we never see it. Um, it, it must raise doubts in the public mind about uh, uh, the politicisation, the lowercase p, politicisation of criminal justice, whether uh, people inside the, uh, the system are taking sides or whether they're still committed to the objective and impartial uh, collection of evidence and exercise of the power of uh, prosecution. It's a significant power, the ability to uh, prosecute somebody, to, to uh, place them before a court and uh, present them with, uh, with an indictment that uh, could deprive them of their liberty. It, it should be beyond uh, politics, lowercase p, uh, and let's hope it stays that way. Yes. There were uh, political overtones or undertones, weren't there, in this, uh, there seemed to be a great concern by, as we approached the election, by the Liberal Party, who uh, allegedly had a, a woman problem. And of course, the opposition was taking advantage of that. But what I found astounding was when the Prime Minister made the announcement uh, in the Parliament, and I think Miss Higgins was there in the Parliament, and he apologised to her for the terrible wrongs which had been committed against her. And I thought, well, how does that, uh, how does that fit with the presumption of innocence? Well, the answer is it doesn't. Uh, that was a very bad mistake. And uh, uh, the former Prime Minister, uh, Mr Morrison, did seek to walk that back. I, I think he was just completely unaware of the significance of what he was doing when he apologised to Miss Higgins for the terrible things that happened in this place. Uh, I.e. he accepted implicitly that terrible things happened in Parliament House. This is before uh, uh, Miss Higgins and Mr Lerman uh, got, were able to tell their stories uh, before a court. That's uh, not the only occasion, though. The um, uh, that was spectacular, but equally as, as notable was the speech that was given um, uh, after uh, a Logie's presentation, uh, which caused a, a temporary stay. Uh, that featured uh, before the, the Sofranoff inquiry as well. A similar thing happened, did it not, over the Brereton report uh, of uh, allegations concerning criminal activities by our soldiers in, uh, allegedly by our so soldiers in Afghanistan when uh, the Brereton report was tabled and again there was an apology for the terrible things that uh, happened in Afghanistan without this being determined judicially. Yes, look, the, the head of the, um, the Australian military uh, really should have taken a little bit more advice. I think he apologised to the people of Afghanistan for uh, for the conduct of the Australian Armed Forces and before anything was proved, uh, I think even before people had been charged. So Lord knows what will happen if um, there are eventually uh, acquittals, but that's not the point. Those sort of things cover the turf that really should be left to the courts, to, to the judiciary, applying the rules of evidence and treating uh, criminal conduct with the seriousness 
and impartiality that we expect. And inroads into that should be resisted, not just by the judiciary, but uh, by everybody. Uh, the power of the state over individuals is immense. And unless a few uh, limits on that power are recognised, uh, we're in a terrible position. The, uh, the release of the Durham report in the United States, I think, demonstrates the way that we could go if we followed the American path, and that is what is now being referred to as the weaponization, i.e., as you say, the small p politicization of the Department of Justice, uh, the FBI, the CIA, and not only them, but also the, uh, the taxation authorities, the IRS. It, it is being alleged in America that the IRS, the taxation office, is being used against political enemies. That is that uh, if, if you misbehave politically from the point of view of those in power, they sue the, uh, the uh, taxation office onto you. We haven't seen that in Australia, have we? Thankfully not. Um, but the, the Sofronoff inquiry has unearthed, if you like, um, uh, on a smaller scale, on a different scale, um, concerns about the structure of, of um, the justice system in the ACT. Uh, Superintendent Moller uh, gave evidence about his concerns with the role of the Victims of Crime Commissioner Heidi Yates, uh, acting as a, uh, a supporter, a support for Miss Higgins throughout this trial. Uh, she's, uh, there probably is a, a role for uh, a publicly funded supporter, uh, a social worker perhaps, to uh, ease the, the pressure on uh, people who complain of uh, sexual crimes. I think that's reasonable. But the reality in the ACT is that Heidi Yates is an uh, extremely senior public servant. Um, she sits on a committee, um, uh, and she was sitting on uh, this committee before the, the Lerman case, in which uh, a review was being undertaken of hundreds of uh, uh, complaints about sexual assault, in which the police did not charge people. So Miss Yates, on the one hand, is overseeing a review of the conduct of the police, while at the same time she was supporting Miss Higgins and, act, according to Superintendent Moller, uh, acting as an advisor to her, while the police were uh, attempting to investigate uh, an allegation in which she uh, had made serious charges that relate quite clearly to the same category of matter that Miss Yates was uh, overseeing. It's, um, it's problematic and it, it goes to what seems to be a confusion of duties in the ACT justice system. On the one hand, you've got the police required to adopt what uh, Superintendent Moller described as a victim-centric approach to the investigation of uh, uh, sex crimes. While on the other hand, uh, the police, and you've got to have some sympathy for them, they're, they're responsible for rigorously investigating um, uh, these allegations and preparing a case. And 
One of the matters that is of crucial importance in these sorts of cases, and it's not just the the Lerman case, it, it's the the credit, the creditability, uh, credibility, if you like, of the complainant. And it's impossible, if you think about it, to test the credibility of a complainant without, in these particular cases, causing some distress. Yet the victims of crime legislation requires the police to try and minimise that. And I, I would not be at all surprised if Mr Sofronoff in his report has something to say about the way those two uh, policy approaches have subjected the police to what looks to be a dreadful uh, conflict. And this might have something to do with the fact that some police found it so, so, so stressful that they had to take leave. I don't blame them. Um, if police take their duties seriously, and it looks as though they, they have in this case, they're in a dreadful position. And I think it's, it's, it's incumbent that sooner or later there needs to be a better way of reconciling those two policy goals. The, the current system is clearly putting too much of a burden on police. There's too much conflict in their duties. I think you're right. Uh, I found uh, the presence of the victim of crime commissioner always there with the complainant inappropriate. Uh, in, in, uh, in previous times, a complainant would be going to court and if she needed uh, comfort, that would come from Salvation Army officers who'd go to court with her or somebody like that, not someone with the name of victim of crime, which itself is almost a contempt of the court, I would have thought, in that there's a suggestion there that uh, yeah. here is indeed a victim of crime, but we haven't yet decided that question. Do you think, do you think the ACT has all the, it, it purports to be a self-governing territory like uh, the Northern Territory. It purports to be something going towards a state Yet there is no upper house. There's a single legislature. There's no upper house. There is no constitutional head like a governor or administrator. Or it's a very, it's very much more towards a dictatorial system where you have a legislature which is married to the executive, thereby offending the, uh, the separation of powers, but uh, without any any obvious check or balance. I think that the Commonwealth mm. under the present government has abandoned a lot of its control over the territories. Look, for a long time, I think uh, many people were uh, quite content to simply allow the, the ACT administration to run its own race. It uh, didn't seem to uh, infringe on too many matters of public importance. But we've now got uh, serious questions being raised about this government's ability to manage a fair system of justice. Uh, but it's not just this. The, the property rights of, uh, in the ACT uh, must also be in question after mm. the, the government of that territory decided to effectively nationalise a, uh, a Catholic-owned hospital. Uh, I mean... Is that really what we want? We've got to remember that, let's compare this to what happens in the United States. 
Washington, D.C. doesn't have its own government. Uh, they're quite capable of, the Americans are quite capable of getting along perfectly well without setting up a, a governor of the AC, uh, of, of Washington, D.C. Uh, and I think their population would probably be a little bit more extensive than that of Canberra. But the, the role of the, the government of the ACT also needs a little bit of scrutiny as well. Uh, I, I draw this to your attention. Um, Mr. Drumgold has uh, been accused of all sorts of conduct. He's admitted that he uh, misled the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Territory. His relationship with the uh, police, on the other hand, is very strained. His counsel has accused the police of bizarre conduct. So we've got a situation where the central player in the criminal justice system has a dysfunctional relationship with people and institutions that should be smooth, where there should be a smooth relationship. Now, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that in uh, New South Wales and Victoria, the directors of public prosecutions uh, in those jurisdictions are two silks, and they had taken silk uh, eight to, I think it was 11 years respectively, before they were appointed to the DPP's position. Mr. Drumgold, however, uh, was appointed um, DPP on the 1st of January 2017 and took silk subsequently in the same year. So he was appointed uh, without experience uh, as a senior counsel and only took silk after his appointment as DPP, which is not of itself a fatal flaw, but it, it's it's interesting to to note in the light of the the accusations uh, that have been made over the way he's conducted this uh, this matter. The um, I, I found uh, some of his explanations curious, particularly over contemporaneous records, the, you know, the idea that when you make a note of a conversation that you make notes at that time and the judge would have assumed that that was contemporaneous and he admitted to misleading the judge. But could you explain to us, it sometimes appears in the media and people would wonder what on earth this is, what is exculpatory evidence and why is this of relevance? Exculpatory evidence is evidence of innocence, evidence that would undermine um, uh, the prosecution's case or arguments that the, uh, the person accused of an offence is actually innocent. And there's a duty on, uh, on the prosecution to provide exculpatory and in inculpatory evidence to that's the defence. That's a new uh, word. That's part of... <laughs> In inculpatory. It is, oh. uh, but it, but it's Good part of the me. duty of the prosecution to uh, disclose uh, relevant evidence, all relevant evidence, to the defence. Uh, the um, this arose in the the this inquiry as well, because a report produced by Superintendent Moller um, that was highly critical of. Uh, uh, Miss Higgins, uh, her credibility, her believability, uh, 
was not voluntarily provided to uh, Mr Lerman's counsel. It had to be provided by the DPP I'm talking about. Mr, uh, Mr Lerman had to directly approach the police in order to get hold of it. Um, he had been told by the DPP that this report was uh, uh, privileged, legally privileged, but the police had no such claim of privilege and were quite happy to provide it to, uh, to defence counsel. Uh, so, that, again, that raises another aspect of the uh, questions about the fairness of the uh, pretrial procedures. Uh, if someone's liberty is at stake, it's incumbent on arms of the state, and that's what uh, the DPP is, to play fair, to uh, uh, show not just to the defence, but to the community as a whole that people who come before Australian courts, no matter what jurisdiction, get a fair trial uh, so that there cannot be any doubt in it if there's a subsequent conviction about that conviction, that it was obtained other than by fair means. That's why the community has a stake in uh, this inquiry. And it's one of the factors that I think, well, I would not be surprised if Mr Sofronoff explores that a little bit because there's been a number of instances that have been brought to his attention where the fairness of the proceedings were uh, called into question. We, uh, of course, don't know what happened and we're not taking, obviously taking a position on these matters, but the presumption of innocence is so terribly important in our system, and you've explained very well, and thank you for that, what is exculpatory evidence. What was extraordinary, I thought, in that was that uh, if there was a privilege, that is to say it was uh, there, there something which the police could claim, he was trying to claim the privilege which belonged to the police rather than the other way around. Mm. And, that, that, that seemed to weight it very heavily, which is inappropriate because our system does require that uh, the directors of uh, public prosecutions, the Crown prosecutors, behave in a certain way to ensure justice occurs rather than that they win. They, don't, they mustn't mm. win at all costs, That's exactly in other right. words. The, the, mm. uh, That's exactly right. And there's one other matter I'd like to ask you very briefly about, and that's the mediation. Uh, that mediation seemed to be rushed through. It, it, uh, we, we're not told how much uh, damages were paid to Miss Higgins. The rumour seems to be about three million. This is because of um, uh, the Commonwealth not uh, exercising their duty of care, is it not? Look, the... There needs to be uh, a, a bit more scrutiny into that um, for this reason. There's been no findings of wrongdoing against anybody from the Commonwealth, from the previous government I'm talking about. There had been accusations uh, made about a couple of ministers. Uh, during the Sofronoff inquiry, uh, Mr Drumgold uh, withdrew his... Uh, uh, former accusation that there was some form of uh, conspiracy uh, involving uh, the police and the former government. 
uh, there was no evidence of that, and he subsequently withdrew it. Uh, the mediation, however, is take, it took place in December uh, at a time when the, the, the criminal trial had, had been abandoned. Uh, there was no finding of any minister. Yet the two ministers who, were, who knew most about uh, Ms Higgins's treatment by the government uh, Michaelia Cash and Linda Reynolds were effectively subjected to financial coercion to ensure they could not give their side of things at the mediation. Government representatives told both those women that if they insisted on having their say at the mediation session, that the government would withdraw its undertaking to pay their legal costs um, and as a result they felt obliged to withdraw and allow the mediation to go ahead without their involvement. Now that raises questions about why, uh, on what possible basis the government decided to uh, make a payout to uh, taxpayers' money to Miss Higgins. Now there are rules governing these things and they're, they're set down in the in the legal services directions for the Commonwealth. And if there's no finding of wrongdoing, there are two options. Um, those, before the government can make a payout, it would need to either obtain a lawyer's opinion saying that there was a reasonable prospect of a, an adverse finding in a court about the way the government had conducted itself or government officers had conducted themselves and if that's not available, if uh, no lawyer would put their name to such a statement, the only other option is for the Attorney General at the time, and this is uh, Mark Dreyfus, who was the Attorney General, to provide uh, a written uh, certificate saying that special circumstances apply and therefore uh, uh, a payment is should be made despite the fact that there's been no finding of wrongdoing against anybody, and despite the fact that uh, there might not have been a lawyer's opinion uh, saying that the Commonwealth was was potentially liable and could be found liable in court. Now, we don't know what basis there was for that payout. And I've been arguing that this is exactly the sort of thing that needs to be brought to the attention of the, uh, the new National Anti-Corruption Commission, now, I'm not implying in any way that there was any corruption, but somebody needs to be looking over the shoulder of the government officials who conducted that mediation to ensure that the rules were complied with. If the rules, uh, if it got down to the fact that the, the payout uh, was made on the basis that the Attorney General said it should be made, I think the community needs to know that, uh, particularly given that there's been no finding of wrongdoing by any minister in the previous government. And Mr Drumgold's accusations of a conspiracy involving people from the previous government have been withdrawn. Uh, I think that's the great unanswered issue that still needs to be addressed. So I'm dying to see what the new Anti-Corruption Commission does with this. How can matters be brought before the Corruption Commission? 
Well, as I understand it, under the model legislation that was um, introduced to Parliament by Mr Dreyfus, anybody uh, can refer a matter to the, uh, to the Commission. So I, I would not be at all surprised if uh, somebody, particularly those who are now in opposition and have been the subject of uh, some adverse statements about their, their role or alleged role in this, were to make a referral to the new commission. There'd be nothing, as I understand it, to prevent them doing so. It would be a matter for the commissioner to determine whether he should accept that, I assume. Hmm, yes. But it seems to, from uh, your very excellent description of the mediation, which uh, I agree with, there were features of the, uh, of the uh, mediation which may well be correct. The curious one, the particularly curious one being the disincentivization of the two ministers mm. who were the people most informed as to what might have happened in the matter. Uh, it's not to say that everything they said would be accepted, but uh, they, could be, they could be appearing before the commission and uh, the mediation rather, and giving their evidence because one would have thought that would have been crucial for the mediation. Well, that, I think that's a reasonable uh, observation. Um, I think there does need to be uh, an explanation. We need to know that. Why were they excluded? Why were they uh, effectively subjected to financial coercion to, to ensure their, their testimony was not given um, at that mediation. At the time, though, um, I, I suspect that decision might have been influenced by the accusations that had, had been flung around during the uh, Lerman proceedings about the involvement of uh, uh, politicians' political influence. There were some very loose assertions made, not just in court, uh, but generally uh, in the media. Uh, about the role of the former government. And I think it's, uh, it's incumbent that we pin those down a little bit. And if these two women, these two former ministers, were prevented from uh, put, uh, effectively defending the Commonwealth's interest because of uh, baseless accusations that had been made uh, a few months previously that clearly now we now have no basis in reality. I think someone needs to be held to account for that. This is taxpayers' money that was was outlaid. And it's not simply the question of money. It's the question of uh, uh, doing the right thing. Mm. The, um, the mediation is there to resolve disputes that are justified. And if this dispute was unjustified, if there was no ill treatment of Miss Higgins by anybody associated with the Commonwealth, I, I can't understand uh, why taxpayers' money should be paid to an individual in that position. Yes, I think that's very clear. In the uh, few minutes that we have left, uh, I notice uh, on a completely separate matter that you have reservations about the voice to Parliament which is to be the subject of a referendum later this year. Could you summarise what your reservations are? 
Yep, very simply, it gets gets down to this. You can put aside all the arguments about justiciability and legal provisions and um, all, all the technical legal arguments. Yes, they're important, but for the general community, my reservations come down to this, and it's if you establish a constitutionalised, publicly funded lobby group for one group of people, what you're doing is undermining the concept of equality of citizenship. Equality of citizenship is closely related to the rule of law, which requires equal treatment under the law. But equal treatment under the law would be meaningless unless we also have equal treatment, equal access, if you like, to those who make the law and those who apply the law. And all, all those things would be in question if we establish an institution whose sole purpose is to lobby parliament and the executive, that's all, all members of the public service, all ministers, lobby them on the basis of uh, racial preference. That's the sole purpose, the sole reason for establishing uh, the new institution. Uh, that said, I think it's a, a tragedy the way this uh, referendum has been conducted, this process has been conducted. I think most people in this community would overwhelmingly support the idea of constitutional recognition for Indigenous people. But this referendum is not just about that. That's an afterthought. It was added months after the original drafting of this provision was unveiled last July. The real purpose of this referendum is to, is to constitutionalise a new institution by giving it its own chapter in the Constitution. Now, that's significant because the structure of the Constitution helps the, the High Court determine how much weight it places on the various arms of government. Now, at the moment, we've got uh, chapters devoted exclusively to the legislature, to the judiciary and the executive. And now what we're proposing to do, we're being asked to establish a new chapter that would rank equally with those other uh, branches of government. It, literally, it would be a fourth branch of government based on race. That's my concern. I, I can't see how this achieves constitutional recognition in a way that would appeal to the vast bulk of society. It, it would um, amount to, I think it's alien to the structure of the rest of the constitution. There are no group rights until, uh, until the voice came along. There are individual, few individual rights in the constitution, but this would establish a group right, which is something brand new that I'm unaware of any other precedent for it anywhere. I'm very uneasy about it. I think you're absolutely justified. I went back recently to the 67 referendum and the precursor bill that Menzies introduced and, and his speech, his address to the House on the bill, where he expresses reservations about having 
a race power and inclining to the view that the the race power, which mm. is section 51 plus item 26, I think, that whether that should be removed, yes. which uh, is, I think, an attractive mm. proposition. And uh, I agree with you the way in which the uh, the, the method has been, uh, the, the referendum has been proposed. As we know from uh, the founders, from Quick and Garren, for example, that... Uh, that they say they put in the safeguard of the double majority referendum, the Swiss-style referendum, mm. that was put there not, not to prevent change, but to prevent change made in haste or by stealth. And this exactly seems mm. to refer to what is happening at the moment, is being made in haste and by stealth, I think. Yes, look... Uh that's exactly the phrase that I used in a, a, a book uh, that came out last year on the No Case, uh, Beyond Belief, it, uh, Constitutional Change by Stealth. We don't know exactly what we're voting on. Uh, the, the principles um, in, encapsulated in, in the government's proposal, the, the new form of words, are open-ended and broad. It's up to the politicians after a successful referendum voice. And I don't think that's good enough, quite frankly. I think if we're going to change the Constitution and give constitutional standing to a new institution, we need to know a little bit more about it than, than the brief references that have been made in the form of words that will go into the Constitution. I think it's a little bit too dangerous. So you wouldn't buy a used car unless you kick the tyres and uh, drive it around the block once or twice. And I think we're, that's exactly what we're being asked to do. We're being asked to buy a used car without checking it out, without seeing what it's like. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and on that point, I think uh, we must uh, finish. But uh, I remember during the 1999 referendum when Alan Jones was uh, phoned up by people asking him what to do. And eventually he would say at the end of the conversation, listen, if you don't know, vote no. If you don't know, vote no. And it wasn't bad advice. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time. You've been generous with us. And I think you've clarified some very difficult matters. Thank you. Uh, and I'm... Uh, Quite okay. Not at all. I'm David Flint. This has saved the nation. And until next time.